Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to fade that out, but that brings back lots of memories of the program here on 3CR. And it's been great listening to all the different people who have been on this program. just shows you the wonderful work that FO does. And, of course, 3CR does in conjunction with Friends of the Earth. Jan Bartlett, and it's coming up to one minute past four. I'll be here until six tonight. And today we'll be looking at the inaugural World Anti-Imperialism Conference in Caracas, Venezuela, with Melbourne activist Joe Montero. He was a delegate there. Protest in Canberra during the visit of the Indonesian president with Ronnie Karani and friends. Ongoing campaign against nuclear waste dumps in South Australia with Dr Jim Cairns, who's the National Anti-Nuclear Campaign at Foe. Another reaction to the so-called Trump peace plan with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees from Sydney University. But first, let's go to East Gippsland after the devastating fires. Fiona York travelled to the area of East Gippsland at the end of January. I asked her what she was confronted with on the way. Drove out to East Gippsland and stopped in at Sarsfield, which is just out of Bansdale, and two of my good friends who evacuated from Goongarra, they're wildlife carers, and they had three wallabies and a baby wombat that they had to take with them, and as well as all of their stuff. And so they evacuated on the day that the fire was to hit, or the day before, and drove down to Sarsfield, thinking that they'd be relatively safe there, and then, of course, Sarsfield itself was really badly hit by the fire. So they had to evacuate a second time into Bansdale with all of their animals. And so I went to to their place and stayed at their house, at um, Joe's mum's house, and the entirety of the town of Sarsfield, which is only a few k's out of Bansdale, was completely black. Her house was okay, but everything around it was black and every house on the other side of the street was burnt down and it was still really smoky. There's a swampy kind of bog area a couple of, maybe 500 metres from their house that was still on fire and plumes of really toxic smelling smoke was coming out and it was an absolute bedlam there. There was just EPA checking the, the air and there was CFA and there was, yeah, just constant people coming and going yeah, it was crazy. Could you go further east? Yes. So after I stayed there, I went up as far as Goongarra, which is about 70 k's north of Orbost, so another hour and a half or so past Sarsfield. And, yeah, it was pretty devastating. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. It's, as soon as you hit the Bonang Road, um, which is the winding road, people probably know it, It's used to be closed canopy, beautiful forest all the way up. And it's just black from the moment you hit the Bonang, pretty much all the way to Goongra, apart from one little patch of green, which is around Sardine Creek. I cried all the way from Martins Creek up to Goongra. It was really sad. Is there a town there? 
in Martins Creek. There's a couple of people that live there and there's a couple of people that live at Sardine Creek. And I had supplies that had been donated by the Merboo North community in the back of my car. So I was stopping off at each of the places and dropping off food and petrol and face masks and things like that and water. And that was the first supplies that had come through since the fire hit in late December. Is there a town of Goongarra? Yes. Well, town in the loosest sense. It's got no shops. Um, it has a CFA shed, a phone box, um, and it used to have a school, but the school closed December last year due to lack of kids. And how did that area survive? The whole town was hit really badly. There's around 12 houses were lost. So that's quite a chunk of the town. Uh, about 20 people stayed to fight and defend their houses and um, lots of people evacuated as well. Um, the evacuation notices were given out by the police and the um, department on the 29th of December and some people chose to stay and defend and some people left. Most of the houses that were lost were absentee landholders. There was about four or five of people's actual residences that burnt down as well. So pretty devastating loss to the town, yeah. So from what you've said, Fiona, it's not, you weren't a stranger in the area, and we need to go back to 1993. Yeah. What took you to the area in 1993? Um, there was a forest festival on uh, at the end of no, it was, yeah, November 93 that was put on by Friends of the Earth and the Wilderness Society and the local environment group, Crowegg. And I went and visited that in 93, and then I went away, fi- finished travelling around, and then came back in 94 and didn't leave, basically, stayed there. And the setting up of the, the grassroots organisation, mm. Gator? Yeah. How did that happen? So those same three groups that did the festival decided that instead of leaving and just being this kind of blow-in city-based activist thing that they would set up as base in the heart of East Gippsland, which was Goongra, which allows you to then monitor the logging and, and we were very much into direct action and blockading. So we set up Gecko, or it wasn't me that set it up, I was there probably maybe just under a year after it got set up and then it became a base for activists to come and do direct action and do, yeah, forest monitoring and things like that. What did you have there? It was a house that we rented for a while and it had <laughs> it was it had pretty rudimentary um, accommodation. Lots of people were building, you know, tents and humpies and teepees and that in the bush around. But the actual place itself, it just had a phone and a couple of donated computers and a kitchen and, yeah, and we just ran it out of there. What about power? That's yeah, we had mains power. Yeah, so that about half the town's on mains power and the other half are on stand, standalone solar. So we were one of the ones that had mains power. Yeah. Talk about the surrounding area and the flora and the fauna. Yeah, East Gippsland is one of the most biodiverse places you can imagine. It has huge, big old trees, but it also has incredible biodiversity. It's one of the strongholds for rainforest in Victoria. I don't know if everyone knows that we actually do have proper rain forest like in Victoria that looks like the jungle and it's warm temperate and cool temperate rainforest and also a rare crossover so there's heaps of endangered species there's heaps of biodiversity beautiful big tree ferns and there's two or three well there's two main rivers that run through Goongra and there's a whole bunch of little creeks as well so we were really lucky to have such a beautiful place and the Erinundra Plateau part of that was protected in the 80s but a lot of it was still being logged all the way through the 90s and through the 2000s as well so 
a lot of that old growth forest was getting smashed. Um, there still is old growth logging happening. The fires have obviously impacted on their logging at the moment, but there's still big old trees being felled um, up until very recently. How did you protest against that logging? Yeah, so we had we did direct action. Um, so we did blockading. Um, we would set up structures like tripods and we would lock onto bulldozers and we would set up tree sits and all that kind of stuff blocking roads Um, but we would also do monitoring of the forest and try to find endangered species because there's laws that protect them sometimes Um, so we would find those species and then send off the data and try and get areas protected we also did lots of lobbying of government so writing to politicians Um, we worked with city-based groups to try and do different campaigns around various areas or particular things that we were trying to protect. So whatever tool we could use, we would try to do it. And we also were really into working with the local community as much as we could, even though in the very beginning they really hated us. But <laughs> over time we wore them down a little. Yeah, I think um, it's a bit hard to be a greenie down in the oh, area, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty bad. It got a lot better. But, yes, yeah, certainly in the early 90s it was pretty rough. You did got refused service in Orbost all the time. Your kids got hassled at the school in Orbost. And, and yeah, we also had... And there's still definitely tension there. um, But I think over time we did build up a bit of community. And we often wouldn't say where we were from because it wasn't a good idea to say you're a greenie in that area. And, yeah, there was some pretty famous incidences of violence against people as well. Well, over the 20 years or so that you were there, Mm. what do you believe you achieved? We protected Goolungook, some of it. Um, what do you pre- mean some of it? Well, some of it was logged, yeah. unfortunately. Um, the heart of it was really logged in, ni- when, what, what year is it? This 97? wasn't illegal logging, this was legal logging. Legal, but it turned out to be illegal. But, of course, by the time we got through the court system, that was gone. gone. But, yeah, that did turn out, because it was a heritage river, they shouldn't have been logging that area. And all of the scientists and the scientific reports were saying don't log it, but they don't pay any attention to science and they still don't. We also managed to protect a bunch of forests behind Goongra and more recently we had that announcement only a few months ago that all old growth logging is to cease. So little bits here and there, little parts of protections, a whole bunch of greater glider zones have been protected because of citizen science work that Gecko has done and yeah, I mean you try, you get your wins when you can and try and celebrate them, eh? Talk a bit more about the animals and the birds. Yeah. So there's some pretty awesome endangered species out there. Um, there's long-footed potteroos, greater gliders. There's tiger quolls or spot-tailed quolls. There's a whole bunch of owls. So there's powerful owls and sooty owls, um, which are also endangered. There's crayfish in the rivers that are also endangered. And there's a whole bunch of plant species as well. So just even common animals that that people maybe don't realise are rare because we see them so much there that we don't we sort of take them for granted. So there's heaps of wombats, there's platypus in the river, um, there's wallabies and kangaroos all over the place, black cockatoos. All of that stuff is just really common and you see it all the time. So you take it for granted. But actually, when you think about it globally or even in a statewide context, it's an amazing little oasis. As soon as you used to drive up the road, you'd be seeing wombats and wallabies and hearing the black cockies fly over and... Yeah. And of course, if they hadn't been logging, there would have been a lot more areas yeah. where you would have seen those. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you believe's lost now? It's pretty devastating. I think there's very, going to be very hard to come back from this fire. So we don't know yet, really. Um, we need to, we've looked at the maps. It doesn't look great. 
and we now need to ground truth that we need to actually go into every gully and see if anything survived. But Martins Creek rainforest is toast. So that was the biggest stand of warm temperate rainforest in Victoria, incredibly biodiverse, and now it is just black sticks, nothing's left. And yes, some of the eucalypt species will grow back, some of the kanukas will grow back, but we've lost that biodiversity. And it's a result of climate change, but it's also a result of them logging and burning everything around it for 30-odd years to feed the Eden chip mill. So without all of that edge effect of all of that logging up on Paradise Ridge Road and all around the back of Martins Creek and all around the back of Goongra, that has exposed these rainforest gullies to catastrophic wildfire. And now now we have to go in and we have to look at Quark and we have to look at Goolungook and we have to look at those icon areas, go in there and have a look and see what's left. It looks bad on the maps. Um, Erinundra Plateau is looking okay at the moment, but there's fire all around it. They're back-burning to protect <laughs> so-called certain plantation assets in New South Wales. So these things are threatening at the moment the last stands of cool temperate rainforest, the mountain plum pine up on the plateau, Goonmert Rocks Road, all of these incredible, iconic, amazing areas. But having said that, there I noticed when I was in Goongar a few weeks ago, there was a little gully just behind my place that was green, the only bit of green. So you never know, there might be some stuff that's okay. But that's our next mission is to... We'd, like, we'd love to get a helicopter and fly over, um, but, but we can't do that. So, yeah, it's going to be driving out and just having a look on the ground and seeing what's there. Is the possibility that the animals have survived, they've got somewhere else to go, or is it, was it too fierce, the It fire? was pretty fierce. It's when, I don't want to depress everybody, but when I was up there, it smelt like death. There weren't many birds. Um, the larger birds and the real small ones were around, but the middle ones were gone. Having said that, I've heard since that things are coming back. There's a lot of feather-tailed gliders coming out of the trees. Um, and pygmy possum, the little, little things are coming out. Lots of the wombats from the ref, wombat refuge survived. And there's a heap of wallabies and roos around. So now it's trying to feed and water what's left. We don't know what the impact on the creeks are yet. There's a rainfall soon after that, which you know, put a whole bunch of ash in the river. So the platypus and the crayfish, we don't know. But, yeah, this is all the stuff we need to find out now. Like, what has been the impact on our forest heritage in Victoria? This was our icon jewel, and it's been very badly impacted. It seemed to me, by listening to broadcasts on the ABC, that they they were concerned about the wood chip pile catching uh, fire than they were about yeah. the forest. Yeah. There hasn't been, I've not heard of a great deal of forest, like, attempt to try and protect these spots. So I did see recently that they put a lot of effort into saving a big old messmate tree near Bendock, one tree. We, we just need, we're just hoping that the cowboys aren't loose with their drip torches up there. It's possibly that they are, like, we, but because the roads are all closed, it's basically a militarised zone at the moment. There's, police roadblocks everywhere and who knows what's happening so yeah fingers crossed that we can save some of what's left up on the plateau any idea when you were allowed to go back locals have just been allowed back in just this week are they friends or foes uh, friends yeah. yeah friends yeah 
but the problem is, I guess, it can close any time. It's, it's dangerous trees all because up and down the road is burnt. Um, so they are closing it. Um, fires are still burning into the south and to the north of Goongarra. And so it's, it is hard. You have to be, you have to get a permit to get up there. And at the moment, anybody on, there's no mains power in town. The, most of the phones are still out. And, you know, stuff's been dropped in by helicopter or driven in by, by mates. And yeah, they were, they were told to expect three weeks of looking after yourselves after the fire, but it's been, what, nearly seven weeks now. Um, and still no services back in the town. So. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty rough out there. Plus, everyone's pretty demoralised and sad looking at the bush. How many animals do you believe were rescued? Oh, hard to say. There is a special refuge? There's two. There's two refuges in Goongarra. There's a wombat refuge and then there's Wallabia, which is a, does all different species. What people have been doing is feeding out and to, to the, in the burnt areas, putting out wallaby pellets and animal food and water, um, and then monitoring those spots to see what's using it, um, looking out for, you know, footprints to near the wombat hollows and stuff and just trying to see what's left. Who knows what's left? But it, not everything's gone. So, and it's really, really important now because there's not any green pick at all it's all black so everybody's trying to get as much feed out as they can and friends of the earth are running a bit of a um a thing if people want to get involved they can check out friends of the earth's website um and there's a there's a a volunteer kind of thing for east gippsland there where do you get the food for them from we've been getting it donated there's the donations have been amazing there's been pouring in from all over the place just people sewing pouches and donating and so yeah there's an the wildlife victoria's got an account at one of the local feed stores and people are just yeah really really generous so it's been fantastic yeah what about the danger that the the loggers are going to come in and take the ones that have been burnt yeah that's possible because that's home for the animals yeah too and the birds and the birds yeah, yeah. It, absolutely and also a burn is different to logging. Logging is going to destroy everything. I mean, the way they log now. The way they log now with the clear fell logging and the, and the heavy machinery. But they are talking about salvage logging, which is what they call it, which is going in and, and grabbing the burnt trees. There's a bit of a campaign at the moment to try and stop that from happening. So people are being asked to talk to the Premier about that. There's an online petition that Gecko's running at the moment to try and stop salvage logging. The people, the timber industry in East Gippsland is on its way out anyway. The announcement was made a few months ago that it was being phased out. Going back in and salvage logging, this area that has been so damaged by fire is absolutely criminal and should not be allowed to happen at all. Whatever remains, whatever comes back needs to be absolutely protected now. What do you think about the long phasing out? program well do, do environment groups have any import into this in, into those announcements no the 10-year phasing out of native forest logging was looked like it was based on the the mill contracts rather than the ecology and what's needed or even jobs the immediate ending of old growth logging we welcomed that announcement because we'd been campaigning for old growth logging to cease for what since 1993 but 
unfortunately they're going to get us in the detail with the definitions of that one. And now that the fire's gone through, they're going to probably reclassify everything that was old growth as being damaged by fire, therefore not old growth. So these are the things that we have to now make sure that we don't take our eye off the ball. Obviously the community is really devastated at the moment and is trying to rebuild, but it's up to us to try and make sure that we can protect what's left. And you're also working with communities in other areas that haven't been fired yet? Um, in terms of other forested yeah, areas, areas, like yeah. Central Highlands yeah. and that? Yeah. yeah. So we we do work with the Central Highlands campaign as well, um, and they, are, they haven't been burned, but they, they were pretty devastated by fire a few years ago. So, yeah, it's, fi- it's harder and harder to find areas that haven't been burnt, and any any green area of forest now needs to be immediately protected regardless of what values it had previously because it's the only green thing left now and you don't really realize the impact until you see it like when you see a little green patch you get so excited because it's there whereas before we just took it for granted so all of the green patches and there's a rally actually coming up in Melbourne to protect the unburnt which I would urge anyone that's around to go to. How much logging is there in central Victoria now? I'm not an expert on Central Highlands, but I know they're still going hell for leather as if nothing's happened. And you've got to think about these things outside of a forest management zone perspective. It's not just one zone or another. It's a statewide, Australia-wide global problem. Warm temperate or temperate forests are the ones that are going to be the most impacted across the globe from climate change. We need to protect them. Um, They're the lungs of our planet, and we really now is the time. We don't have any time to waste. So what are you asking listeners and people outside the area to do? Are you asking for money or are you asking for supplies? What is it? Um, both. So people can go onto the net website, which we set up soon after the fire just to try and support Goongra. We also have Goongra Environment Centre. Gecko is um, calling for donations to be able to do that ground truthing work, to do the surveying, see what animals are left, see what forest is remaining. There's a rally to protect the unburnt. I don't have the date off the top of my head, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it. And also there's um, you can get involved in the Friends of the Earth wildlife feeding thing if you want to drive out and have a go at putting out pellets if it's a feel-good thing that people can do. You're obviously going to see a bunch of burnt bush, but at least you're going to be doing something about it. So all of those things, I reckon, go for it. So there's certain places you can get into and there's certain places you can't get into. Yeah, you can't get up into Goongri yet, but we're hoping in the next few weeks that will be changed and we are hoping to have a camp up there at Easter time. It won't be our usual citizen science camp because it's too much at the moment for us to pull that off, but it's also going to be for people that can handle seeing it. It's not easy and it's not the green oasis that people remember, but we really do want people that are resilient enough to come out and check out the bush with us and we can try and together make a plan to protect what's left. Thanks, Fiona. Thank you. And that was Fiona York, who's got 20 years more experience of living up in the area of East Gippsland, which now tragically is severely burnt. But they're fighting back and you can help. You can get onto the web pages either of Gecko, G-E-C-O, or French of the Earth, VO, and find out what you can do to assist in supporting the people who are still there, the animals that are still there, and the animals, we hope, 
will come back once there is food for them. And just to let you know also that it is listener sponsored drive and those are the reasons why when you play interviews like this and you cover issues that you'll find not too many stations are impo- really important to them at the moment. They might have covered it at the time, but it's all sort of history now. But here at 3CI, we talk about those things all the time. And here's just a message from Jacob Greck just to show you why it is so important to keep this radio station on air. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave, and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and, in doing so, remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 9419 8377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. On the 22nd of January in Caracas, Venezuela, hundreds of delegates from 51 countries attended the 2020 World Anti-Imperialist Congress. One of those was Joe Montero from Melbourne, and I asked Joe if this was a yearly event. That was the first stop, and they're talking about having another one next year, but uh, the final decision's not been made yet. It also comes out of uh, a period of discussions between different groups. There have been uh, one or two governments involved in it as well, unofficially, of course. So it's not something that just came at the spur of the moment. How many people, how many countries were represented there? Officially, there were 51 countries, not including Venezuela, so the foreign delegates from 51 countries. There's a condition on that because... Uh, more than half of the delegates were actually blocked from arriving in Venezuela. So there were over 1,100 delegates who were registered, who were coming. 403 got there. I understand quite a few were blocked uh, in the United States. Others were blocked in Europe and in some parts of South America. Same thing. How many from Australia went? Six of us. What was your involvement? We were all delegates. Uh, we registered separately, but we met up once we got into Caracas. We were staying in the same hotel, uh, so that really helped. And uh, we did work as a team, and uh, we made sure we attended as many workshops as we could. And the, the conference was largely workshops. 
Were there speeches though? There, there, there? there were speeches and there were some really special people. Uh, I mean, really significant people in Venezuela. There was also a senior member uh, from the Communist Party of Cuba at the opening session. Uh, there were also... Uh, quite a number of ambassadors who were there, including countries, of course, Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, Russia, China, Syria, Iran, uh, and uh, People's Republic of Korea. There were a number of other countries who were also, also had diplomatic representation there. There were also delegates from some of these countries who participated in the conference. Was there a specific theme to the conference? Yes, uh, the specific theme was to start the process of building an international movement uh, against imperialism and to defend the rights of people and the sovereignty of nations. Tell us about some of the workshops you attended and was it difficult or easy because of the language barrier? Obviously tougher and one of the problems were there were a number of different languages uh, involved and there were translators provided. They did a fantastic job. They were well organised. Uh, also had technology to help in the in the bigger sessions. There's a universal language. Uh, I think the passion that was there was pretty pretty obvious. You know, people were slogans, shouting slogans, feeling very excited about things. And that really communicates, doesn't matter which language you speak. But the sessions, yeah, we were all able to say our piece, uh, participate and, uh, you know, uh, ask questions, uh, comment on things and so on. What was your contribution? The first workshop I was involved in and uh, when I found out I was asked to be one of the speakers at the conference, uh, so I can't speak uh, some Spanish but I got somebody who could speak it even better than me to translate because... Yeah, in a situation like that, it's better. Uh, and that was concerned with one of the main themes, uh, really underlying themes of the conference, of building grassroots power to bring about change. And what about housing all those people, hundreds and hundreds of, of guests? Where did you stay? Uh, we stayed in hotels around the area. Hotel, uh, the, the, venue, the conference was held at a hotel, the Arbor Hotel, which is the biggest hotel. used to be the Hilton, which was nationalised. There are a number of other hotels we stayed at. Now, this is at least your second trip to... It is my second trip. trip. I, I went basically a year ago. So you're in Caracas, the capital city. What did you notice different, or were there many not differences from the last time? There was some difference. The main difference is there's more of an air of calm. Then it was tense. It was the time when Guaido, the opposition leader, backed by Washington, declared himself as president. So there was a lot more tension around the place. It's a bit more relaxed now. But having said that, it is still a very politicised city, uh, certainly uh, in terms of people's conversations and the, you know, the signage everywhere, the politics of the place is very much alive. Is it a divided city in one sense? It is. Uh, it is because it is really divided between the wealthiest parts of the city and the rest. That is the main division, and there is a stark division there. Talk about some of the people that you met in Caracas, the, the workers. I'm sure you met a, a fair few. Yeah, we, we, we did. We met quite a few people there, and they're 
very welcome and very happy sort of people uh, love music and to dance we see that all the time the people out in the streets playing music and it's not hard to get people to move yeah do a bit of a wiggle but there is a demarcation and what stands out that that, that most of the people the opposition people and they are minority uh, and a shrinking minority are much more european looking uh, most of the population of Venezuela has some uh, indigenous connection or Afro connection. And certainly there is a cultural and uh, historical and a difference in attitude, which really stands out. A lot of slaves were brought to that uh, they, they were by the time when, when Spain uh, ruled the place as a colony. Slaves were brought in uh, into the sugar and tobacco plantations. Well, in a big city like Caracas, what did you learn about access to power, access to food? We're told that half the population is starving because there's no food. Health, medicine? The country's not too bad in all those respects. Caracas, best. Certainly there's no shortage of food. Uh, the problem is the cost of certain items. Uh, they are expensive for people there. But there is food everywhere. There are cafes, restaurants. There's always people in them. There are street stalls everywhere and vendors. People are always getting food, getting something to drink and so on. It's a culture where people like to be outdoors, particularly when it gets into the evening. And you know, the streets are full of people. Uh, doing what you'd expect people to do in a vigorous city. Last time there were power blackouts, is that correct? That's right. What about this time? Not in Caracas, but there were outside Caracas there are there were short-term uh, power blackouts for a few hours. So we experienced a couple of those. Again, there are ongoing problems. There are ongoing problems with the denial of replacement parts when something breaks down. Uh, the power industry for instance is German built originally and is dependent, maintenance is dependent on having access to German parts and Germany is, is joined the boycott so it won't allow those parts to come so they need to find alternatives and that takes time, it is difficult and sometimes in certain areas the power will go out for a little while. What about the health system? I know for, for many decades um, Venezuela has had a reciprocal with Cuba. Yeah. Oil for that That health. was more in the early days of Cuban doctors and some nurses coming there. Since then, uh, one of the major reforms in Venezuela was the, it's been the creation of new universities and training. So they've trained a lot of doctors. So now essentially... They are Venezuelan doctors and Venezuelan nurses. Hospital system is varied. Certainly we saw one particular case where the actual social movement actually run the hospital, was their hospital, and they had a, a bit of a different slant to medicine. Medicine is about an ideological thing where it's about part and parcel of serving people and building a new society and, and they deliver medicine in that context the big problem is access to medicines because that's one of the major part probably the biggest part of the boycott is to deny medicines for instance insulin is a big problem also some of the technologies uh, some of the repair uh, to, to equipment and one of the, the hospital we saw where the impact was on the dialysis uh, unit where the, all their 
dialysis machines can't be used, so it's having an impact on patients. Power, again, is a problem that they need sufficient capacity for emergencies. Of course, it being a hospital, hospital still needs to run when the power blacks out. It's a problem of affordability. It's a problem of access to technicians. It is difficult, but they are managing as best they can. What did you find out about the, how the other social missions are going? We found out most of that we found out after the conference when we travelled through parts of the country to some regional centres but also the countryside and we found that the key thing we found is that people are organised into what they call communas, we call communes and a lot of people, a whole lot of people, and they, they, in a local area that a number of communes will federate into a unit and they are linked to other regions and so on. Their key task is to, to what they call to introduce and build democracy from below because it's about participation, everybody having a say and actually doing, but also it's about creating a, a political power from the ground up. It's about what they call carrying out revolution through production. In other words, to produce more. The interesting thing is, in the countryside, we're talking about people who are traditionally peasants. If, uh, for instance, a large part of what we saw is what's called the Sierra there. It's a historically cowboy country with hats and all, and horses. Cattle people, of course. Uh, now they're in a situation, yes, they still were cattle, but they're also growing a wide variety of grains, fruits, uh, vegetables, sugar cane, to actually largely sustain their people and the people around them and to contribute to the national effort. Now, they talk to us a lot about it. Everywhere we went, we were met by significant numbers of people, you know, sometimes over 50 people in one spot, and we were able to exchange uh, with them uh, for us to learn. They asked us questions about ourselves in Australia. Everybody knew about the bushfires. Uh, and the level of understanding is amazing and the level of commitment of people. One thing about agriculture, although this is a cowboy area, and the same thing happened in, with the Andes Mountain people, is that they're well aware of the destruction made by agribusiness in terms of putting chemicals into the soil, creating a lot of damage. So there's a big shift to turn around into natural agriculture that's sustainable. They're cleaning up their soil through, in the main, two things. One is using breeding worms, and we did come to a couple of worm farms, and using what they excrete as a fertiliser, but also using natural feed for animals, for their livestock. There's a shortage of, of this and they're, they're finding their ways to do it, but they need more. They are working on it. Again, it's the lack of resources. They can't import stuff and money is in short supply. But they're doing some amazing things, uh, actually, without using chemicals. One of the problems, for instance, that we were told is that, which we need to watch here, is, for instance, cattle had been, and particularly cows in the dairy industry, had been uh, given uh, antibiotics. They found that the antibiotics actually killed the worms. 
on the soil. So they had to get rid of antibiotics and they're using natural means to actually keep the cows healthy. So it, it is pretty inspiring stuff. But I finally want to say that the, it was pressed on us time and time and time again. This is not just a technical issue. Any of these aren't just technical issues. They're about an ideology about the way we see the world and the way we see that we need to progress to the future. Again and again, it was pointed out to us, if we've got a lesson to show anyone, it's that. It applies to all nations that what you do must have a purpose, a purpose to serve humanity and to build a better future. If not, then it's not going to happen. What about in the Andes Mountains area? How is that different? Traditionally, uh, in the countryside, they were more into growing crops, into growing grains. Uh, the big grain in Venezuela is corn, like all of South America and Central America. It's a staple of the diet. Second, it's not so much in the mountains, but some areas associated not too far away where there's water is rice. They eat quite a bit of rice there. Beans those black beans that we're famous, we see at Mexican restaurants. Interesting, they grow a plant which produces a tuber, which is a substitute for potato called yuca, which is eaten very widely around the country. Actually, they don't eat a lot of potato. It's, 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 it's fairly rare. They eat a lot of yuca, uh, which you can cook in the same way as you cook potato. That's more their, their tradition. They're not cattle people, in other words. But they are branching out now. Are they the indigenous peoples? Some of them are. And some of the uh, the communas do have indigenous people in them and there are indigenous uh, communas. In places we didn't go, further south in particular, there are entire indigenous communities that are doing their own thing, but they're organising themselves. Do you know much about land rights in Venezuela for the indigenous peoples? Not a huge amount, but uh, there were Indigenous peoples who were actually involved in the conference as well, uh, and the, one of the workshops actually was an Indigenous workshop. It had Indigenous people from a few other places. For instance, there were quite a few Indigenous people from Colombia. There was a, a sizable Colombia group, but uh, the Indigenous people were a significant part of it and other South American countries. It's the same sort of thing as everywhere. Uh, you know, oil industry, mining companies try to get them off the land. They've organised a resistance to it. The difference now uh, since the rise of the Chavista movement uh, is that now there is a law where if there is a claim and they can work the land, that doesn't only include Indigenous people, it includes peasants across the place then they can put an application and get title to the land, which they have been doing. This, a lot of the places we visit, that's happened. There are one or two places we visit where they're going through the process at the moment. Their problem is that the landowners, the historical landowners, who controlled most of the land, a small group of families, are hiring guns to actually assassinate what they consider troublemakers, leaders of the movements. And there have been quite a few killed in the last year alone. You are listening to Melbourne activist Joe Montero speaking about his recent visit to Venezuela. There was a movement many years ago to force the the breakup of the big farms. Is that because the, the the landowners were absent, and if they stayed absent, 
for a certain amount of time, the land reverted back to the people. Uh, That's a large part of the picture, and that's continuing, uh, and that's what's what's happening. It is. uh, It's not always. Quite a few times that uh, there's quite a few of those big landowners who actually don't live in the country. They live in the United States. What they say locally is, look, they only come here for holidays, but they won't allow anyone to use the land and there's wide tracts of land so the idea is to have that land cultivated and to feed people. So they've been able to negotiate with those landowners or has there been trouble? There has been trouble but their advantage is sometimes yes they can do some some of that but other times no but they have an advantage of a new of a law which actually allows them to go through the process to get title and it's been pretty successful. The problem is the illegal activities of the landlords. Uh, they're in the habit of um, hiring Colombian paramilitaries to do their dirty work for them. How far away from the border is this? With the, it's accessible. The closer you get to the border, the more that happens. But it is a fair way in. Uh, you know, you get a you know two or three states in. It's still happening. You said there were Colombians taking part in the conference, the Congress. Yes. What was their role? They were doing the same thing as the rest of us. Uh, they were in it, uh, and they were certainly opponents of their government and, uh, and representatives of the grassroots movements in Colombia. You travelled closer to the border. What was it like? It's a very porous border. People are travelling backwards and forwards. It is. It's extremely porous. We're talking about a thousand kilometre border. A lot of it's forest. It's divided by a river. It's not hard to get a little boat and go across, and people do. Uh, one of the problems there that that border is historically the cocaine trail uh, on both sides. It's also been where there's been a lot of unrest over the years, but it's also one where, where the cocaine and other forms of contraband are very much part of the local economy. So a large part of the population lives in some way off it or survives off it, share in it. It's also, because it's porous, you've got a lot of Colombians living on the Venezuelan side, a lot of Venezuelans living on the Colombian side. One of the ways to make money is just to take stuff which is cheap on one side across the line, sell it there, buy some more stuff and bring it back and sell it in the other direction. And, you know, people have been making a living for it for a long time. It's very difficult to end. One of the major contraband items is petrol there now, because petrol is pretty much free in Venezuela. You don't pay for petrol. You get an allocation. But if you can fill up a drum or two and take it across the border, you can sell it at world prices. It's a good living. It's uh, three or four months' wages in one barrel. How have they been able to maintain that low price for the oil? Because of the boycotts and whatever. It's providing access. I don't know why it acted. There is nominally a price. It's it's point zero zero. Five per litre of a cent per litre. Why bother with the price at all? Well, they don't because service stations don't collect the money because it costs them more to collect the money. They get subsidised and people get a this ticket with a with a number on it, which is scanned when you go to a petrol station to get your share. You know, one of the problems is it creates shortages of petrol, uh, and we saw lots of really long queues of people waiting, waiting to to get their fill because as soon as a service station gets a load of petrol, it disappears in no time. doesn't turn people onto bicycles. Are there many of them around? 
No, they're very rare, but there are a lot of little motorbikes. You m- mentioned the, the forests on, near the border. Is there a forestry industry? Uh, there is a forestry industry. One thing a lot of the communities are doing, the, the agri- agrarian communities, they're actually reforesting part of their land. I should have said that before as part of restoring the land. But there is a forestry industry. It's not like somewhere like Brazil, but it does exist, yeah. What about fisheries? A lot of rivers in Yes, in there are. And and that is, for a lot of people in the countryside, a big part of their diet is what they get out of the river. Fish, mollusks and so on. There are a growing number of cultivated fish farms which have been run by, by communas as, as an addition to the other stuff they do. Apart from Caracas, which I believe is a fairly big city, what about other smaller cities? Did you visit some of those? We did. I mean, down south, there was a city called uh, Santa Barbara. It's a regional capital. Uh, again, it's not quite as crowded as uh, as Caracas, but it has a similar feel to it in many ways. It is more linked to agriculture, obviously, as a regional city, but the same thing. You know, there's plenty. There's food. There, people are out in the streets, particularly around the centre of the city. They're doing what everybody does everywhere in the world. Tell us about the music. The music is, is really great. It, it's, it's a bit like uh, traditional Cuban music. A lot of uh, African uh, And influence. a lot of a strong African influence, very strong. So they have their own form of music. But there's also the music of the area we went to in the south, you know, where Santa Barbara is, which is, by the way, it, it's where Hugo Chavez came from, where he was born and grew up in that area. They have their own unique style. There's also the indigenous uh, music as well. They kind of blend into an Africa sort of Latin rhythmic sort of thing. They're also big on on hip-hop. Their own form, though. Sometimes it gets all mixed up together. (laughs) What about food? A fair variety of food? Uh, There is not a... What we're used to in Australia, oh, but, 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 but certainly in terms of every, a lot of corn stuff. A repas is traditional breakfast, which is like a corn f- sort of flatbread thing with cheese or ham or, or something or meat or chicken minced inside it. We all liked it. Yeah, what you expect in most places. You know, you get fish, meat, pork, beef, chicken. Chicken's quite big. Duck. The range of vegetables, beans are, are, are very common, uh, yucca, as I said, and a whole range of other stuff. It depends what you want. A, a lot of fruit, there's stacks of fruit. Tropical climate tends to be tropical fruit. The place is buried in bananas. <laughs> bananas everywhere. If you go into a shop, you order, they've got the best fruit juices I've ever had anywhere. So they do have stuff. And their coffee's good too very different to the, the pre-Chavez time, wasn't it? Because because they had the oil, they had lots of money, they imported most of their food and they've had to turn that round to uh, produce the, their own food. Yeah, they're still importing most of their food and it's been a slow hog. They have made some progress in growing their own food. They've still got a long way to go. And it's very difficult for a couple of reasons. One is that for a long time, for hundreds of years, it's been a monoculture economy. It was sugar cane, went through a period, tobacco, then that gave way to oil. The rest of the economy has been restricted. Uh, they didn't have much uh, industry, a manufacturing industry, but like everywhere else, there's a lot less now. 
So they need to invest. The problem is with the attacks on the currency and the lack of access to credit through the internationally controlled banking system is making it very difficult. But they are progressing. There is a movement in the cities to use open spaces to to grow food as well. So that's kicking off. But they need to, in the long run, they're aware of that. They need to get off their dependency on oil. They need oil for for the foreseeable future or in the immediate future because that provides the means to actually uh, achieve other things. But in the long run, people are well aware that they need to they need to shift. While I'm on that, I'll say at the conference, people are talking everywhere and there is a huge awareness of the need to build a sustainable economy into the future. Very busy couple of weeks for you. What were maybe two highlights? One of the highlights, which uh, I penned earlier this morning, it was uh, this place we saw. We, we, we actually, it was a bit isolated. We actually had to get on the backs of motorbikes to go down this bumpy dirt road to get there. And most of that, the length of that road was their, their turf. Uh, they had a soccer field on one spot and they had other things. We went to the end and they, we went there and uh, they showed us how they crushed their sugar cane. So, you know, went up there and they gave us a drink of juice. Then we got a second drink with our niece in it. And then somebody came with, uh, I never had, uh, the sugar cane version of grappa before, but it knocks a hole in the back of your head. Uh, so they, they wanted to show it off. So that, that was the atmosphere there. But they also took us to another section where that they've got a bakery. One of the things they do, one of the extras, they bake bread rolls and bread for, for the, the area. They supply their own people, but they also contribute. They knew we were coming, so they set up. They got some of the people in their kitchen kneading dough when we arrived, and then they actually put it in the big clay ovens, and by the time we finished, they were cooked, and we had a few. They, they did that for our benefit. That was a great example. It was fairly typical, but it's not only... It was the atmosphere there as well as what we saw. You know, we were involved... We got uh, involved in a lot of discussion about everything. They also provide schooling, primary school level schooling for their kids. They actually train their people in the latest techniques and uh, and so on. They do a whole lot of stuff. It's the enthusiasm that's there that really captures people when they see it. The way they treated us as well, we were treated like almost like heroes, should I say, in a sense. We, were, we couldn't have been more welcomed there. And by the way, I just finished on this note, which was, again, fairly typical. We had steak for lunch there, which not everybody in Australia gets to eat all that often. Another answer to the, uh, the claim that they've got no food. We didn't eat alone. We ate with the people around there in this big dining room, and they had the same. And on Thursday, you, Lucho and Helen will be talking more about the visit? We will be, and there'll be more details about this about what we experienced, what we saw, what we heard, what the message they gave us. We will be presenting uh, some requests that were made for assistance, and the details will come out then. We will also be presenting uh, the a statement put together by the Australian delegation to the conference. That will be put there, and it concerns about achieving the aims of that conference 
in Australia, bringing people together to create, to start developing uh, this movement. We're, we're talking about solidarity with another nation as people and as they keep on telling us, solidarity without practical content means very little. It's the practical content that makes all the difference. Be making some requests of people in regards to this. On Thursday, 6.30, that's this Thursday, the 13th of February, 6.30 at Room 1 at Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets. Thank you. And that, of course, is Joe Montero, who was one of six Australian delegates at the inaugural International Anti-Imperialism Conference held in Caracas, Venezuela. And I'll just read again what it's all about. There is the delegates meeting at Trades Hall on Thursday. It'll be in Room 1, that's on the ground floor. And at 6.30, as Joe said, and that's this Thursday, the 13th of February, and you can show how you can support the campaign to assist the people in Venezuela. And while you're doing that, why don't you get on the web to 3cr.org.au or give us a call on 94198377 and pledge to become a listener sponsor to this wonderful 3CR program and station. Hi, my name's Pilar Aguilera and I'm 3CR's chairperson. I'm urging you to become a 3CR subscriber. We need to keep independent, radical, dissenting voices on air. Social change doesn't just happen. We need to nurture it. We desperately need to hear alternative ideas that allow us to organise, build community and change the systems that continue to oppress us and destroy the planet. Put your money where your mouth is. Become a member. Subscribe today. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio, you got it right You've won a giraffe uh, We're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. And that number to ring is 94198377. Well, Indonesian President Yoko Widodo was being fated in Canberra yesterday. A number of demonstrators were outside the Hyatt Hotel to voice their concerns. We're here outside the Hyatt Hotel and the President of Indonesia, Yoko, is inside and I'm here with three men from West Papua. Hi, my name is Ronnie Kareni and I've got other two brothers here. Hello, my name is Adrian Zvirif. Myself is a, a plate of flossy. And we are here today. Basically, we know that Indonesia and Australia will sign the trade agreement, economic trade deal that they have been assigning. And our message is that 
no trade deal without human rights protection and no trade deal with genocide in West Papua. And that is our key message here. And we are here to demonstrate and show him symbolically the message that is on this banner, Free West Papua, Rip of Lombok Treaty. And we've already got Indonesians, guests who are coming in here to meet with the president and are expressing their concerns that, oh, this, why are you guys staging this protest? And I told him that the situation in West Papua is deteriorating every year, every day. And in terms of human rights situations, the military operation, and especially we see last year in August alone, peaceful demonstra uh, demonstrators or peaceful protesters are faced with prison charges now. We have 57 political prisoners right across West Papua and Indonesia wow. charged for treason, just simply protesting or organizing peaceful protests. And just like us here today, mm -hmm. we gathered here in front. For West Papuans, they don't have that liberty or that freedom to freely express or assemble together. The Lombok Treaty, as Brother Adrianus here, can speak of his experience as, as one of the 43 West Papuan refugees that came in early 2006. Their arrival sparks diplomatic tension between Canberra and Jakarta and the outcome of that is the Lombok Treaty by which it's a defense and security agreement by the two governments but it also within that they embed in clause 2.3 says that Australia should not abate or allow separatist movement happening in Australia but it is very open-ended agreement by which Australia was that serious, we would have been already arrested now, you know, if that treaty. And so for us, Indonesia is using every means to silence the voice of any governments in the world. And through that treaty, we are calling for Australia and Indonesia to, to rip that treaty and to also consider human rights in that treaty. And this is why with this economic deal, we are calling for that as well. And what's your name and what's your experience? Uh, my name is uh, Plato Aflasi. Yeah, my experience uh, as uh, an activist when I was in Central Java of Indonesia in the 90s, I had a struggle with my friends and it was pretty hard, but uh, I do believe that someday I have to go overseas to learn English to increase what happened back home in West Papua, that everybody knows that uh, human killings and then now uh, Jokowi is coming. And I found the news about the developing economic business and na 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 na. But uh, what I see, uh, nothing developing in West Papua. It's all just like under debt, debt of blood. The result is people get tortured, get chasing everywhere. And then regarding to a Lombok Treaty, the autonomy program, what I saw as a student in Central Java at that time, that the Lombok Treaty tends to an uh, autonomy program, but uh, I didn't see any West Papua indigenous in the, in, the, in the meeting in Lombok. Nothing. And how we agree with that result? We never have any West Papua sitting in any international agreement which is uh, using West Papua natural resources to develop an economic international business. And people are victims of this situation. Yeah. That's what I see for last 20 years as a student until claim a shalom seeker in Australia and end up in Townsville. So what do you have to say to the President of Indonesia, Yoko? I just want him, when he leave West Papua country, leave us alone. Just I, I want to see.
It's not only him, them, one is smart to build up the economic blah blah, but West Papua have um, what you call a good standard too, to develop their own country. That's what I, I do believe that. To me it reminds me of when colonists came for the first couple of hundred years in Australia, just massacring people and showing no respect, taking over a country against people's will. That's pretty similar. Uh, only the situation of us in West Papua was a Dutch built the parliament, involved all indigenous, and we, we were wearing jackets like uh, white people in Europe in 1950s, 60s. Ah. And why we become animal now? That's animal I mean, Indonesia pulling our, our necks like a cow. That's what I just don't understand. We were developed by Europe and then this guy is coming and put us down. That's what I can't accept it until today. And why do you think that West Papuan cause doesn't get much really, really big power international support? I mean, there's a lot of international support, yeah. but it's all from the margins. It's not the mainstream. Why has yeah. why the cause been left to this appalling state it's in now? The matter is, uh, yeah, example with this agreement today, the, the Jokowi is here. This, so that Australia starting like began to uh, a deaf man, you know, doesn't want to listen. And after Jokowi leave, Australia starting to listen again. That's, I, I, I just got upset every time. These guys are playing West Papua or not, I'm, I don't really believe. But uh, I do believe so also in next future, things will change it. It's every politician is not do the same thing. But someday we had a powerful people standing for West Papua. I do believe that someday. And that was Rani Karini and friends demonstrating in Canberra at the visit to Australia of the Indonesian Prime Minister, President, not quite sure now, not quite sure, one of the two, but he's, he's the big man in Indonesia. Everyone's bowing down to him because of the great job he does, but certainly not for the people of West Papua. And we heard before that um, acting up the great program that's been going for a couple of months about the history of the Friends of the Earth closes, finishes today, but next week The Celtic Folk Show is moving to a new time slot So tune in every Tuesday at 3pm starting on Feb 18th I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow. Follow the sun. Which way the wind blows?
Back in March 2018, the South Australian Government said it would back a federal government proposal to build a nuclear waste dump in the state's outback. It was revealed that the federal government was looking to store low-level nuclear waste and temporary store immediate-level waste in one of two locations near Kimber or one at Bandiotta near Hawker in the Flinders Ranges, this being the latest of previous pushes for the dump. After many community meetings and a community ballot, since then the Federal Resources Minister Matt Canavan announced last week his intention to move ahead with plans for a national nuclear waste dump near Kemba on South Australia's Eyre Peninsula, ignoring the unanimous opposition of the Bangala traditional owners. Dr Jim Green is the National Nuclear Campaigner for Friends of the Earth. So Jim, let's begin with that push for the nuclear waste dump, the national one. Who were those behind it? Was it just government or was it business as well? It's a federal government project and it's primarily to get waste out of Lucas Heights, which is 30k south of Sydney and it's operated by AMSTO, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. AMSTO operates uh, a small nuclear research reactor there and other facilities and they've got 93% of the radioactive waste that the government now wants to dump in South Australia. And the immediate question which arises is why not keep it at Lucas Heights? And that's the question we've been asking for the past 25 or 30 years. There's no obvious reason to move the waste from Lucas Heights. That's where it's concentrated and they've got high-level security there and it just doesn't seem to make any sense to dump it in a remote location. So, yeah, that's what's driving it is, is a political push to get waste out of Lucas because it's uh, in Sydney, which is relatively populous and has a lot of electorates, including marginal electorates, and they just want to dump it in a, in a remote site where there will be minimal political pushback. Has it risen exponentially in recent years, the amount that's there, or is it sort of a just a very gradual increase in the amount of material? It's fairly gradual. In Australia, we produce about 50 cubic metres of waste every year. But um, I think it's important to understand that, you know, that's measuring by volume, but you never really want to measure radioactive waste by volume because, uh, say, nuclear fuel is orders of magnitude more radioactive more hazardous than other types of, of low-level radioactive waste. So we measure by radioactivity anyway. Whichever way you measure it, uh, almost all of the waste is currently stored at leukocytes and can stay there for the indefinite future. What about waste from hospitals and facilities like that? Is that radioactive stuff that goes to leukocytes? Some of that stuff comes from leukocytes, uh, the medical radioisotopes. But the doctors much prefer to use short-lived isotopes for nuclear medicine procedures because that gives them the best results with their nuclear scanning and also because it minimises risks to patients. And so a lot of that medical waste either decays fairly quickly and can be disposed of in landfill or it is sent back to Lucas Heights and is currently stored there. So the government likes to talk up nuclear medicine and suggest that uh, you know nuclear medicine will be jeopardised if we don't build a, a remote uh, nuclear waste dump. But those claims amount to scaremongering, which is quite ironical because that's what they accuse us of. Only a small fraction of the waste is medical, 
almost all of it can either go to landfill once it's decayed or be sent back to leukocytes. So that's really not the issue. The, the real issue is the nuclear research reactor at leukocytes, which is responsible for an overwhelming uh, fraction of this radioactive waste. How did they go about choosing the two sites that they've been looking at since um, they've been pushing this? Well, it's been a, a long process. Previous governments have simply picked a site off a map and uh, used the data probe the site announced defence. So they tried to dump it at Woomera in South Australia and were defeated. They tried to dump it north of Tennant Creek at a place called Muckety in the Northern Territory, but they were defeated. So then they initiated a bottom-up volunteer process, which was great in principle, but it caused all sorts of problems. So, for example, a former Liberal politician nominated his side in South Australia's Flinders Ranges without telling or consulting with the neighbouring Aboriginal people who are living on an Indigenous protected area immediately adjacent to the dump site. So that's one example of where a bottom-up volunteer process can go badly awry. Anyway, sites in Kimber, which is the current preferred site, uh, they were nominated and then rejected by the federal government and then uh, some people in Kimber renominated sites and they were accepted. And so one of these sites near Kimber has become the, uh, the preferred site. And who's on that land at the moment? Uh, it's a farming family who stand to profit handsomely from this transaction. They will be paid four times the market value of the land that they sell to the federal government. And to win over broader community support, the government has offered a $31 million bribe. It sounds like a, ni- a nice payout, but of course this waste repository would be a hazard for something like 300 years. So you're just talking about a bribe of $100,000 per year, which is peanuts, and which isn't going to revive the fortunes of, of Kimber. And meanwhile, the Bangala traditional owners have been excluded from this process from start to finish. They were excluded from the community ballots, and the government fought a legal action to prevent them being included in the community ballot. So the Bangala traditional owners did their own proper professional independent ballot and that found 100% opposition from traditional owners and that issue is still winding its way through through the courts at the moment but the sad fact is that we've got a federal coalition government which is trying to impose a nuclear waste dump despite the unanimous opposition of the traditional owners so that's a, a sad and sorry state of affairs. How did the government justify holding a community ballot without the traditional owners? Well they said it was just for local people and, uh, you know, there's a long history of dispossession and dislocation of Bangala traditional owners, including the sorts of horror stories that we hear around the nation. You know, there's one particular in Elliston on the west coast of Peninsula where uh, Aboriginal people were literally pushed off a cliff to their death. So there's that ugly history of dispossession and dislocation and racism the federal government seems to think that's just fine and that they should be excluded even though they hold native title over the area. You know, it's just appalling. And also the wider community, we'll call it the white community, they weren't all in favour of it either. No, well, there were 62% in favour, so a clear majority, but it fell short of the government's own benchmark of 65% to demonstrate all community support. 
Uh, and also they've been misled the local community. They've been told that there would be 45 jobs, but that's implausible. If you look at comparable overseas facilities, they're producing, they're processing 10 times as much waste or 50 times as much waste, depending on which comparison you're making, than would be the case of this radioactive waste dump at Kimber. So the claim of 45 jobs is deeply implausible and there won't be 45 jobs. I think there will be a handful of jobs. The community's been misled and they've been bribed uh, and even so, 38% have still said no and they're fighting hard and they held a rally at Kimber uh, with roughly 250 or 300 people in attendance just last Sunday. So there's a big fight going on from locals who are opposed to the dump and from traditional owners and from state and national environment groups and from many others. Well, you've got the government representatives telling the lies or the misrepresentations on your side and the people's side. Who was countering those arguments for the people to have a balance? I mean, we do our best, but it's it's not easy. There's only one mass circulation newspaper in, in South Australia, and that's a Murdoch tabloid called The Advertiser, and they've been campaigning in support of this nuclear waste dump, just as they were campaigning a few years ago for South Australia to become the world's dump for high-level nuclear waste. So we'll do our best to get accurate information out and about, and we certainly do that one way or another through social media and through various news outlets or through direct discussions with community members. But we are on the back foot, unfortunately. And what is a nuclear waste dump? Can you describe what's going to happen, what the government said is going to happen? Yeah, well, it's a pretty weird facility they've got proposed. They want to permanently dispose of low-level radioactive waste, but they want to do that above ground, so they want concrete bunkers, and once they're filled up, they will be capped with a certain amount of, of compacted soil, uh, so it will be an above-ground radioactive waste dump. And for the much more hazardous, long-lived, intermediate-level radioactive waste, that's destined for a deep underground dump, some hundreds of metres underground, but the government says that won't happen at Kimber, and they've got no idea where it will happen, and they haven't even done a site selection process. So what they want to do is move most of that long-lived intermediate-level waste, most of which is stored at Anthos Workers' Heights site. They want to move it to Kimber and simply store it above ground in sheds until such time as the future governors established a deep underground repository for that waste. But that would be decades at best or possibly centuries or possibly never. What happens with the low-level waste and the intermediate waste at Lucas Heights at the moment? It's simply stored, most of it, Underground but, or up um, above ground? A mixture of both, but for the uh, spent nuclear fuel, when it's first taken out of the reactor, it's stored in a pool to cool it down, and at that stage it, it meets the criteria to be classified as high-level nuclear waste, despite the government's protestations that we don't have any high-level nuclear waste in Australia. But that spent nuclear fuel is sent overseas for reprocessing. Historically, some of it went to the UK and currently it is sent to uh, France. And once that's been reprocessed, uh, the waste is sent back to Australia in glass. It's a process called vitrification. And uh, so that's the stuff that some of it has come back to Australia and is currently being stored at Lucas Heights above ground. And more of it will come back to Australia, presumably for storage at, uh, at Lucas Heights. But the government wants to send that stuff to Kimberley for above ground storage.
And how are they going to transport it across to Kimber? Well, for most of the waste, for nearly all of it, it would be uh, with trucking the nuclear waste. Uh, but for the stuff that's sent overseas by ship to France, that would also come back by ship. And so that would need a port in South Australia. And that would probably be the port of Wyala. Um, so I did some other possible ports like Port Lincoln and some others. But Wyala would be the logical one of the most vulnerable ones. So there's a whole lot of work going on with people along transport corridors, whether it's Wyala or, or potential truck routes from Lucas Heights to South Australia. And a whole lot more work that needs to be done to inform these communities about the risks and problems associated with nuclear waste dump because uh, the government certainly won't be doing any of that consultation whatsoever. So it will be left to uh, environment groups and others to get the facts out there. Is it tearing the community apart at Kimber? Is it that bad? Yeah, absolutely. It's a community which is torn in two and people cross the road to avoid speaking to each other. And unfortunately, the pro-dump mayor runs the local uh, supermarket there. So most of all of the people who are opposed to the dump, they have to do a and now a long trip to Kai and Cutter to do their weekly shopping. Uh, but, yeah, it's ugly, and uh, I imagine it's also ugly in the uh, high school there as well, but it's a community which has been torn into. What is the story about the high-level nuclear waste dump? They want to put that one there. That's a separate issue altogether, isn't it? Or is it? Uh, well, yes and no. As I mentioned, along with intermediate-level waste... Yeah. Uh, as with high-level waste, both those forms of waste are destined for deep underground disposal. So in Australia, we have a debate about whether this long-lived intermediate-level waste should be classified as high-level waste or not. And my response to that is it makes absolutely no difference because both forms of waste are destined for deep underground disposal. Uh, and the government broadly accepts that as well. So there's no doubt that this intermediate-level waste needs to go to deep underground disposal and as I mentioned they haven't even begun a site selection process for that but there is a separate issue which is that some years ago in 2016 the state Labor government which is now the state Labor opposition in South Australia they established a Royal Commission to investigate commercial opportunities in the nuclear industry and that Royal Commission found that there were no commercial opportunities with the one exception that South Australia could potentially profit from importing nuclear waste from around the world, high-level nuclear waste. Then the South Australian government ran with that and did some promotional work and they set up a citizen's jury and the government lobbied the citizen's jury furiously and they hoped that would an amber light from the citizen's jury to go ahead and proceed cautiously and with a lot of stop points along the way. But the citizens' jury weren't buying and they just said this is crazy, the economics don't add up and it could ease, just as easily lose money as make money. But the most important point they made was average jurisdictional owners across South Australia had said a flat no and they should be respected. So the citizens' jury voted against a nuclear waste dump and the uh, state government reluctantly accepted that finding. So that proposal to import high-level waste from around the world, that is thankfully dead and buried. And so now we're just focusing on how to manage Australia's, Australia's radioactive waste. How do they do it in other countries which have similar amounts as Australia? Well, there's a real mixture of uh, on-site storage like do at Lucas Heights. There are dozens of these uh, radioactive waste dumps around the world. 
some of them operate reasonably well with just the sorts of minor problems that would be more or less inevitable, but there are others which have been far more problematic. And unsurprisingly, the ones where they have the biggest problems are the ones where the safety standards are the weakest and the regulatory oversight is the weakest and where there's the most cost-cutting. For deep underground dumps, there's only one operating deep underground dump in the world, and that's in the United States. It's called WIP, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, and it's for long-lived intermediate-level waste. And that was set up in the 90s with the highest possible safety standards and with multiple layers of regulatory oversight. And they established those size safety and regulatory standards to win over community support for this deep underground dump. So it was opened up, but as soon as it was opened up, within months, safety standards fell away and cost-cutting kicked in and layers of regulatory oversight were peeled away. So they had lots of accidents, including an underground fire, but the most spectacular accident was, a, was an explosion in one of these underground waste barrels. So that happened in 2014, and it took them three... The, the dump was closed for three years while they fixed up that mess, and the total costs associated with that explosion were about $3 billion Australian dollars. So that's the problem. It's, um, when we're talking human safety standards and regulatory standards, we're dealing with half-lives of months and years, but the half-lives of some of these radioisotopes uh, for plutonium is 24,000 years. So it's just impossible to imagine these, these radioactive waste dumps operating safely over vast periods of time when the when the concrete record is they can't even operate them safely for a period of a few years. Can you describe how they make these dumps in underground? Are they tunnels? Are they, how does it work? Yeah, uh, well, there are different types for the low-level waste. Previous Australian governments have said that they would just dig a hole and they wouldn't align that hole with concrete or anything, so it would just be a dirt hole. But currently the plan is to put the wasting concrete vaults above ground and then when they're full, they will simply cover them over with dirt. The WIP repository, the deep underground repository I mentioned in the United States, that is uh, several hundred metres underground and that is a whole lot of tunnels uh, and disposal cavities and one by one they fill up these cavities and block them off. So, yeah, there are different types of repositories. Doesn't concrete deteriorate? Well, yeah, that's one problem. But um, the reason the previous Australian government said they didn't want to line it with concrete was that so it wouldn't fill up with water and it wouldn't result in corrosion of the uh, steel drums storing this nuclear waste. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Now they are talking about concrete vaults, but... What if there's water infiltration there? Then you will have this corrosion process happening. So I don't know which is the least worst of those two options, but for better work, the current plan is, is concrete vaults. How stable is the land around there? I'm not in a place to answer that question. I would say it is fairly stable, certainly far more stable than one of the other sites that was recently targeted, which is in the Flinders Ranges, which and across the Flinders Ranges owe their existence to previous earthquakes and seismic activity. But it's agricultural land and, you know, the National Health and Medical Research Council has put a guideline saying you shouldn't put nuclear waste dumps on agricultural land for reasons which will be all too obvious to your listeners. Um, yet they've chosen agricultural land. 
only 4% of South Australian land is arable or agricultural land. So they sh- if they need a dump, which we assume we say leave the west of Lucas Heights, but if they did need a dump, then surely they could find somewhere that's not on agricultural land and surely they could find somewhere that's much closer to Lucas Heights than is the case with this current proposal to dump it at Kimber on the Yap Peninsula. It's not going to look too good on a tourist brochure, is it, for the area? Because it is a tourist area. Well, it's just, it's not really a great tourist area. There's a a, a giant galah there, but I I would say that most people going through Kimber are going from point A to point B rather than wanting to visit Kimber per se. But, you know, it's important agricultural land. But there's just this delusion that a nuclear waste dump will be a tourist attraction. So they're planning to have a... (laughs) a tourist centre there and to have a system so people can come and visit the nuclear waste dump. It's just bizarre and implausible and um, I fear that the Kimber residents, including those who have supported this dump, will live to regret it because there won't be any tourism. The uh, amount of money they're getting bribed is pitiful. There certainly won't be 45 channels and will be known forevermore as Australia's nuclear waste dump, which won't improve its prospects whatsoever. And how much agricultural land will be lost? Don't hold me to this, but I think the last figure I heard was 160 hectares. Uh, so not a huge amount, really. But, yeah, and uh, the uh, the pastoralist who's offering that land up to the federal government would be paid four times the market value. So that pastoral family will be the only ones who do well out of this financially. For the rest of the community, they're getting a very small bribe for a, a very long-lived Not a really good look for a clean, green environment, though, is it? No, no. So we don't know how that will play out. Arguably, it's an issue for the whole of the Peninsula agricultural industry because grain and other produce is pulled. It's not readily identifiable as being from a particular location. So we don't know how that will play out. But potentially, the whole agricultural sector on the Peninsula will be affected to a greater or lesser extent. And, of course, this comes on top of what South Australia's suffered over many decades. You've had the, the nuclear industry, the bomb tests, the mining, exploration, if efforts to try and clean up previous dumps and projects. This is something that people see when they go on the radioactive exposure tour. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Jan. I've been doing the radioactive exposure tours for... 30, 35, perhaps even 40 years now and it's a fantastic way for people to see firsthand the impacts of the nuclear industry and to visit people who have been directly affected by the nuclear industry and we're running one of these radioactive exposure tours this year from April 10 to 19 for people who are leaving from Melbourne and uh, yeah we really encourage people to sign up and come along because it's a fantastic experience and we'll be visiting all sorts of sites the proposed Kimber dump site and we'll be speaking to locals who are opposed to the dumping Kimber, possibly even locals who are are supporting it. And Woomera, which is uh, ground zero for a lot of missile and rocket tests uh, and is really central to Australia's nuclear history. And Roxby Downs, we'll be visiting the uh, Olympic Dam uranium mine. Then we'll be heading north to much more pleasant places, including the Mound Springs, which are natural oases fed by the Great Artesian Basin and Lake Eyre. We always camp at Lake Eyre and uh, the Oonadatta Trail 
was a great experience. And we'll go through the Flinders Ranges and hopefully speak to traditional owners and other locals who successfully pulled off a plan for the federal government to establish Australia's nuclear waste dump there. They won that campaign just last year. So they're celebrating their victory, but also supporting Kimber residents who are fighting off the plan for a national nuclear waste dump there. How compromised is the Great Artesian Basin now? There's negligible contamination from nuclear projects, uh, a little bit from possibly from Honeymoon Uranium Mine, which is now in care and maintenance. But the biggest problem is that they extract water from the Great Artesian Basin for the Olympic Dam Uranium Mine. They currently extract about 37 million litres per day and they want to increase that to 50 million litres per day. And they take it from the fringes of the Great Artesian Basin because that's the cheapest way for them to do it. But unfortunately, that has adversely affected a lot of these mound springs, the natural oases, which are fed by the Great Artesian Basin. So we've witnessed the depletion of these mound springs over the decades and... Uh, that problem seems to get worse if they go ahead with the latest expansion of the Olympic Dam uranium mine and if they increase the water take from 37 to 50 million litres per day. And how likely is that going to, for that to happen? Well, I would like to say we're in this thing with the RN. They're fighting that proposal, but you know, BHP is a law unto itself. It operates under a separate state law, which essentially allows it to do whatever it wants. There's very strong bipartisan support at state and federal levels, so we're really just kicking at their heels on this one and trying to expose the problems with this with this proposed expansion of Olympic Dam. But I couldn't put my hand on my heart and say we're going to stop it. I think the best we can do is slightly modify and uh, reduce the worst impacts with this uh, with this expansion. Finally and just briefly, Jim, uranium in water supply in a number of communities in northern Australia, what's your information on that? There's research going on at the moment and that will be published in the near future. The information that I'm most familiar with came out last year, both from Friends of the Earth and it was reported on the ABC and that is that there are more and more remote communities, at least three in the Northern Territory but probably many more and at least three in West Australia and probably many more where the uh, uranium concentration in drinking water exceeds accepted safety standards and this isn't a problem that arises from the uranium mining industry, it's naturally occurring uranium along with a lot of other naturally occurring radioactive isotopes and non-radioactive heavy metals. But state and territory and federal governments just aren't doing enough to monitor these water supplies and to provide alternatives to these aquifers which are polluted and uh, they're not doing enough to address the situation where people on remote communities, primarily Aboriginal people, are drinking water which clearly isn't safe. OK, well just one more quick plug for the radioactive tour. Yeah, it's uh, April uh, 10 to 19, so yeah, I would really encourage people to come along. Um, you know, there's concession rates for people who are wondering how they're going to pay for it, so it's affordable and it's uh, 10 days of uh, <coughs> the beauty and the horror of the uh, South Australian desert and uh, yeah, it's... Uh, there's no alternative to first-hand witnessing of, of the impacts of this industry and it's been a really moving and profound experience for thousands of people who have come along. And for people who do want to come along, um, the Friends of the Earth website is nuclear.foe.org.au and you can 
follow the links there to find out more about the radioactive exposure tour. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, thanks very much, Jan. And that was Dr Jim Green, who's the National Anti-Nuclear Campaigner for Friends of the Earth. And I can remember last year, Dr Margie Beavis, the Vice President, the current Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, went on the exposure tour and had a wonderful time and said she learnt so much about what's been going on in the outback of Australia. So she highly recommended anyone who's thinking of going to do so. It's a great place to be. And I've been also told that the people in the Kimber area are not going to give up the fight. Matt Canavan might be thinking he's won a victory, but the people in the area aren't going to sit back and let this happen. And just another reminder of the new program before this next week. Celtic Folk Show is moving to a new time slot. So tune in every Tuesday at 3pm, starting on Feb 18th. Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, Helping, giving us a chance to do this It's really good, you know It's been going for a while now Hopefully it goes, it keeps going You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this And um, get our voice out there as prisoners We can't blame everything on the external So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor Because real power comes from here And it comes from family if you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. And just to follow up on the earlier interview with Fiona York, talking about Gungara, there's some ways you can help. Gecko is an independent, grassroots environment organisation based in East Gippsland that has campaigned to protect the remaining forests of the region since 1993. Goongra Survives is a film fundraiser with all funds raised going to Gecko to survey fire-affected areas for ongoing forest conservation. Goongra Survives, Café Gummo, 711 High Street, Thornbury, Sunday the 16th of February from 6pm. $10 unwaged. $15 waged and $20 solidarity. For more information, head to goongrasurvives.net. 
a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's Pilar Aguilera and I'm 3CR's chairperson. I'm urging you to become a 3CR subscriber. We need to keep independent, radical, dissenting voices on air. Social change doesn't just happen. We need to nurture it. We desperately need to hear alternative ideas that allow us to organise, build community and change the systems that continue to oppress us and destroy the planet. Put your money where your mouth is. Become a member. Subscribe today. An opinion piece in Pearls and Irritations by Stuart Rees, OIM, Professor Emeritus at Sydney University, was titled Trump's Peace Plan, A Concoction of Humiliation, Cruelty and Illegality. I asked Stuart, was the peace plan as bad as what he expected, or is it even worse? Oh, it's even worse because in that so-called ceremony in the White House, they were thumbing their nose at any kind of ethics, any kind of principle, any kind of respect for international law. But they're basically saying, you know, uh, we'll do what we like, we make the rules. Who cares about vulnerable people? Well, let's talk about your twin deceits, missed opportunities and peace negotiations illusions. Expand on those two. Look, the first one is that for, for decades we've been told that the Palestinians always miss the opportunity, that, uh, that Israel offers uh, an olive branch and the Palestinians turn it down. This is a complete lie, a complete pack of lies, but they keep repeating it as though it becomes a taken-for-granted assumption about how, the, how negotiations operate that's the first so that's the first thing we have to demystify we have to reject the second thing is that the, to call it a peace process is a, is again a, a complete fabrication there was hardly any consultation with the with 50 percent of the parties namely the palestinians so nobody in their right mind surely thinks that if you have a negotiation about something that you exclude one party and indeed the a party with no power at all that that you could ever take the outcome seriously so that the whole thing is a, is a con and a fabrication what's your view on trump's son-in-law well look he um uh, again i mean he, he should stick to real estate i i think he's a zionist uh, totally blind to any notion of human rights, totally blind to the cruelty uh, placed around the, uh, the lives of Palestinian people. I mean, I think he's just there to do his father-in-law's bidding. I mean, the fact that he claimed that he'd learned about the conflict by hurriedly reading several books tells us that the guy is shallow, stands for nothing except massive privilege. Well, we know what the Palestinians' view of this peace plan is. What about the, the countries in the area, particularly Jordan and Egypt? Well, the, Egypt is one of the most authoritarian regimes in the world. Uh, the idea of principle and human rights is completely foreign to the Egyptian administration. So they are, in many ways, as cruel to the Palestinians as the Israelis are. So... 
they will only respond in terms of what they think is in Egypt's interest. Jordan is different in the sense that um, they were home, have been home to large numbers of Palestinians. They're, they're pretty powerless economically, militarily, compared to the, um, to the uh, Israelis. But they usually, under Abdullah and co., retain some respect for human rights. And then we have Lebanon, where many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians now live in abject poverty. Correct. Well, the trouble is um, Lebanon is in a state of complete chaos, complete powerlessness. You'd have to say that the perhaps the strongest force in Lebanon is still the, the Shia-backed um, uh, Hezbollah. So in that respect, they're likely to um, reject outright the... Um, the so-called peace plan. But um, I think the question is, you know, how does the European Union respond? How does brave Australia respond? I'm sure that we would have accepted that that would be the... That would, they, they would do that. They would, they would go along with it. That's what yeah, Australia well, does. Yeah, Australia suffers from a chronic disease, and it's called cowardice. The closer you get to Canberra among... Uh, coalition members of parliament and, unfortunately, a large number of Labour MPs, the more courage disappears and cowardice rises, in particular to anything involving Israel, anything involving what, what the United States says it wants. That's a, that's a tragedy. I've tried to say to politicians when I go to Canberra, look, try a bit of courage because it's quite good for you. <laughs> it would be good for your mental and physical health. I think you'd have to show them how to do it. Well, I've been trying. <laughs> now, this is never. This has no power for implementation, but surely Israel will implement some of these plans anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, it's already a huge. It's one state. It's one large apartheid racist state, and and it will remain so. But the the divisions, the apartheid, the cruelty, the discrimination, the abuse of human rights will will merely be solidified. That's what's going to happen. I mean, some commentators have said this is the um, this is a form of uh, unintended advocacy for one state, for the one state, I wouldn't call it solution, the one state continuation. It's a continuation of the, of a brutal occupation that's been going on for 50 years. Would it make any difference if the Democrats won the election at the end of this year? Depends who the presidential candidate was for the for the democrats i i don't have any great hope i mean biden is a um uh, israeli supporter i think uh, bernie sanders would be considerably different but then you've got you've got other influential candidates like that amy klobuchar who's an unashamed zionist i mean she she should drop out of the race so the answer is to that Sadly, I don't think it would make much difference. America's going to will do what it thinks is in its interests. Well, then it's up to the supporters of Palestinian countries around the world, such as Australia, to voice their concerns about this, surely? Surely, yeah. I mean, I'm never quite sure how the social media has any influence over the mainstream media or vice versa. But... Um, it's quite apparent that in a country like Australia, a majority of people now understand the 
discrimination and cruelty towards the Palestinians and want a just solution. Uh, we have to be out in the streets, we have to be in the newspapers, we have to be in social media, we have to get into the politicians' ears so that they, um, they, they, that they become concerned about one of the major human rights issues in the world and stop bothering about the disgrace of sports grants. Well, there are a number of politicians who have been influenced and now are voicing their concerns for Palestine, which is different to what it was maybe 10 years ago. That's correct. I'm, I'm perhaps I'm being a trifle unfair. There's, some, there's plenty of principled, brave people in the federal parliament, among certainly among the Greens, certainly among a sprinkling of Labour, Labour members. But you uh, shouldn't have to be brave, should you? No, you shouldn't have to be. I, don't, I do not understand why we can't debate this issue. I mean, for example, we tried to put it on the agenda of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in Sydney a few years ago, and, and the administration of that festival said that the idea was far too dangerous. In other words, it was a festival of non-dangerous ideas. We should be able to debate Palestine-Israel. I mean, the Q&A program, ABC Q&A, scared stiff of ever raising questions about that topic. And we've only got to see what happened in the University of Sydney a couple of years ago. Oh, <laughs> I've still got the scars for that. Just don't, for people who mightn't know what happened to you. Well, I mean, it, it, it's quite simply that if you come out openly in support of human rights in respect of the Palestinians, then the huge lobby that, um, that um, supports Israel, and this is not, it's got nothing to do with being Jewish, it's about is the Israel right or wrong brigade, came out with enormous criticism and went behind, behind doors to approach the Chancellor and the Vice-Chancellor to criticise me in this particular case. So, um, look, that's, we, we have to stand up to them. I mean, they're, they're, they're wrong, they're unethical, they're promoting completely illegal points of view, illegal policies. We just need more people to stand up. That the university didn't stop with you, they got rid of Dr. Tim Anderson. That's correct. No, they didn't. No, they, no, no. I'm sorry, I missed the I missed the Tim Anderson example. I'm being a bit uh, egocentric. You should stop me. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's that's true. And again, that one's that controversy's disappeared from view. I mean, Tim Anderson was brave. He was correct. The university doesn't have the, the, the management of the university is uh, even probably even more cowardly than than some of the politicians in um, in Canberra. Where to from now? Out in the streets? Well, I, I, well we can't you, we can't give up, and we're in we're in a fortunate position in this in this country. We, this is not a police state, at least not yet. We can speak openly. I can do an interview with you on this radio station and say what I like and you can ask what questions you like. We just have to have more honesty, more openness, more courage, more, more, more humanitarian alternatives to the way the world is going. Because at the moment we're subscribing to cruelty of every kind and the peace plan of Trump and co is about cruelty. Let's be clear about that. It's cruelty incorporated. Jared Kushner, Trump, Netanyahu and company, 
And so we have to express out loud and with confidence the humanitarian alternatives. And when you think of these two men cozying up to each other on the stage, you've got the president facing impeachment, which is not likely to to um, be successful, but still he's he's not a very nice man. And then you've got Netanyahu facing fraud charges, Correct. which will wipe him out, hopefully. Yep, yep. Look, look. It's part of the cruel, populist, unethical state of affairs. It's what the sociologist Emil Durkheim years ago called animist, a sort of state of affairs where no rules apply, just the powerful people do what they like. It's totally Orwellian. It's where you know slavery is freedom. That's that's what we're being told. But it doesn't matter, does it, what the Israelis or the Americans try to do to the Palestinians. They're not going to give up their land. No, I mean, the Palestinians have been enormously brave. I mean, look, look it's 2020 now, 2020, and every UN report for the last 10 years has said that the Gaza Strip will be uninhabitable by 2020. In the first instance, I mean, the, the policy of the Australian government should be immediately to put every kind of pressure on imaginable to end the siege of Gaza. They should, we should go and talk to the leaders of Hamas, if that's what the obstacle is. I've spoken to the leaders of Hamas, but was regarded as um, uh, communicating with terrorists for doing so. OK, Stuart, well, thank you very much for that, and I hope lots of people read your, your paper, which is, I'll title it again, Trump's Peace Plan, A Concoction of Humility, Cruelty and Illegality. Thanks very much. OK, yeah. so, lovely to talk to you. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. And that was Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees from the University of Sydney. And just pay the... If you haven't got a cafe yet, you should have at least one, if not two or three. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Well, that's all for me for today. I do hope that in the next couple of days, people listening will become sponsors to this radio station, this wonderful radio station I'm sure you'll hear many appeals over those days for you to do just that I'll go out with some music and very soon we'll hear Done By Law, bye for now